0: This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton.
1: And now, from the Wharton Sports Business Summit at the University of Pennsylvania, a full day of learning and networking designed to bring students together with industry leaders. This is a Business Radio special presentation. Here's your host, Cade Massey. Welcome back. Welcome back to the Wharton Sports Business Summit. Brought to you by SiriusXM's Business Radio Channel 132. I'm Cade Massey, professor here at the Wharton School, as well as a host of Wharton Moneyball here on Business Radio. I'll be hosting the second hour of this special two-hour program. We have four, hour, four guests this hour, the first of which I'm happy to have with me right now, Theo Fetter. Thanks Th- for having me. Theo, glad you're here, man. Theo is a quantitative analyst with the New York Yankees. A little organization a bit north of here you might have heard of. Theo, welcome to the program. Thanks. How? Uh, what's, the, what's the vibe in the building up there in New York right now? So you all had a good season, um, but you went down to your hated rivals. Uh, you've got a, a stacked roster, though. I think the future, most people think, is pretty bright. So I'm guessing the mood's not too bad. They're no,
2: the, the mood is good. Yeah, I mean, it, it was tough to, to go down to the, the Red Sox and to see them go all the way and, and win the World Series, but we just oh, so
1: it was two part it was bad to go down to them and then it was also bad that they went on to do that. oh yeah
2: that's the double that's the the worst thing as an analyst in I my see. opinion and an, uh, I grew up a Yankee fan too so it really okay. really hits home um, <laughs> but it, you know you you get back up and you you try harder next year and you, you crunch more numbers um, I yeah. think
1: you guys that work for teams might be better at that than the average fan actually because because you in every season in some sense not quite accomplishing what you wanted to unless you win the championship so most teams are disappointed in some sense but you have to get up and go do it the next week and in my experience i often come to guys who work for these teams more disappointed it feels or like more emotionally spun up than they are because you kind of have to be level about it in some sense yeah
2: i think that that's totally right and you're you're following the team so much during the season and the ups and downs that you get used to those ups and downs, the I devastating losses, the walk-offs, okay. and everything in between. So when it gets to the playoffs, yes, it's, it's terrible and it's disappointing, particularly losing to a rival, but there is some um, experience there. And okay. it, I've been there for a few years now, so I know that a little bit.
1: Okay. So you've been there for three years, for three years full-time.
2: Uh, this going into my third season full-time.
1: Going into your third season full-time. Great. And you said you grew up in Yankees fans. Where would you grow up?
2: So I grew up in Rhode Island, which is Red Sox territory. Um, but my father is from the Bronx, and I spent a lot uh, of time here with uh, my grandparents. And so sort of wanted to be a contrarian and <laughs> wanted to identify with those roots. And so it became a Yankee fan.
1: Okay. And then you went to undergrad in the Philadelphia area at, at Haverford. And then eventually picked up a, a, a master's from Northwestern. They had this great... Quant program, right, out of Northwestern. Can you tell us a little bit about that because listeners to this show might be interested to know. I'm not afraid to pimp that program. Great school, but an interesting program they have going on there.
2: Yeah, it's a, it's a great program. It's called the Master of Science in Analytics. It's an in person program, lasts 15 months with an internship in the middle, which is actually where I started with the Yankees. Okay. And it's a very uh, business and practically focused uh, program, so at any given point during your 15 months there, you will be working on a real project with a real company. Okay. So I worked with Allstate while I was there, I worked with Suddenlink, a uh, cable company working on real data sets. It's not toy problems that you might get in your run-of-the-mill Coursera or statistical class in college.
1: Okay, what, do you th- what skills did you pick up in that job that have most benefited you? Yeah, I mean there's obviously
2: the basics of coding and, and you know SQL and R and Python and learning how to wrangle data and things like that. but the most important skill I learned was experimental design, how to set up an experiment with a lot of data to think about different biases, you know, selection biases, measurement biases, and how to come to a conclusive result with that data. Obviously, there's the other things. Machine learning is obviously a hot topic. Learned a lot of different algorithms and methods that are useful for my day-to-day job. But I would say that critical thinking and experimental design is the most important.
1: So tell me a little bit more about experimental design. I think I know where I'm coming, you're coming from, but I want to make sure because around here, when we think about experiments, we think about, you know, psychology experiments. And we're going to bring people into a lab and put them into two different conditions. You don't have the privilege of, in most cases, of being able to run formal experiments. So what do you mean by that?
2: That is true. Yeah, they're, they're, we're not putting people in a lab. We're not putting baseball players in a lab. But basically, they've been in the lab their entire careers. We've been collecting data and are still collecting new data on them. And so there are a set of natural experiments, as people say, that, that pop up. What's uh, an
1: example of a natural experiment?
2: I mean, a natural experiment is you have, it could be as simple as just one pitcher is throwing one day and another pitcher is throwing the next day, and the conditions otherwise are all the same. Mm-hmm. And so you can see the difference in outcomes. Mm-hmm. That's a very, very, very elementary example, mm-hmm. but that would be one.
1: So the experimental design is a framework it's kind of the gold standard for... Um, ascertaining causality, you don't have the privilege of randomly assigning your players to conditions but bringing that mindset helps you do better analysis, I think is what you're saying Yeah, exactly. If, if you're working with archival data, if you still understand the principles of experimental design it will help you make, make fewer mistakes for one and right. better inferences.
2: Yeah, we can't have randomized controlled trials, by, of course but there are principles from experimental design that are very very useful and undervalued, I would say
1: where, you mentioned machine learning. Old guys like me like to say, kids these days, kids these days, they just take these packages off the shelf and they drop the data into them and they think that that's all they need to do. And so I'm curious, as you've you know, you worked with the big team at the Yankees, so big that you won't tell me how many people it is, <laughs> which is not uncommon. This is the way teams are, but we, you know, we are, we're under the impression you have got a lot of people there. How often are you working with that kind of technology versus more traditional forms of statistical analysis?
2: Um, it's hard to to give a breakdown, but I would say um, more than in other industries, we actually do have places where we can really leverage those advanced sort of nonlinear techniques that are m- more modern and being you know, taught and developed right now. But I would agree with you wholeheartedly that there's a major issue where folks learn the packages, they use them, they plug them in, they plug the data in, and they assume... It's done, and there's still a lot of pre-processing and structuring that folks have to do to get the models to do what they want. They're just a tool. Mm -hmm. You still need to think critically about: okay, what am I trying? What's my objective, and how do I need to reshape and structure this data so that the model will actually Mm -hmm. do what it's supposed to do?
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Can can you give me an example of something that uh, that you're finding hard in your job like that? What's what's a challenge? What frontier are you pushing in your job? right now? And it might be statistical, it might not be statistical.
2: I think one challenge we have is once we get inside as a department, it's hard to stay up to date with what you are doing in academia. And that's why we like bringing in new blood, you know, whether it's through interns or new analysts, people who are coming from school and learning the cutting edge, because we are kind of siloed. We, By nature of being a baseball team or a sports team, we're not out there sharing ideas, doing best practices with, say, the Dodgers or any other team. We're not <laughs> right. saying, like, oh, look at this model I built. You should try this. Like, yeah. we can't do that. Whereas if you're in some industries, you really can especially academia. And so staying on the leading edge is really uh, a priority, but it's tough for mm-hmm. that reason.
1: You know, some organizations travel. They go to, they go to other teams outside the, outside the sport. Like a baseball team might go visit a, a hockey team or yeah. something. Um, or they might bring in some high-performing organization from an entirely different industry. Do you, do you guys do that kind of thing? Like, How is it that you're addressing that challenge?
2: Yeah, so, I mean, part of it, like I said, was bringing in just new people who are smart and who've learned modern techniques, but we do what you're describing. I won't give any specifics, but we will go travel to visit other teams and have them come visit us mm-hmm. and talk to them about where they are, what data they have, how they're using it, mm-hmm. and what challenges they face and kind of share best practices in a way that won't hurt us competitively mm-hmm. because they're in a different sport or at very least not in the same league.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. The, the, the impact of being inside the organization as opposed to being a baseball fan all of your life, how, do you, how has it changed the way you think about baseball? Do you, do you experience the sport much differently now that you're inside the building?
2: Yes, I do. And the, the thing I would say is when you're outside the building, you think you almost know everything. If you're, at least if you're staying up to date with like, you know, blogs and ESPN and fan graphs, I now know how much I don't know. That's the key is there's so much little nuance that I have not picked up on. Every time I talk to a coach or a scout, it reminds me, the lack of knowledge that I have and need to learn. Okay. Which is exciting to me.
1: Can, can you give us an example of something you've learned that you don't know? You know now, and you didn't know before, that you don't know.
2: Um, off the top of my head, I prefer not.
1: <laughs> <laughs> this is the trouble. You guys are so concerned. This is I mean, it's true about baseball. I mean, baseball is so... You've got a number of teams that are so sophisticated, and now they're not just the teams without money. Now you've got teams with both money and sophistication. Yep. And you really are competing over really small margins. And so I'm actually sympathetic. I've gotten more sympathetic. Because, you know, the Indians might be, you know, privileged if you are the Dodgers or the Cubs or the Astros. My god, you guys have to go through the Astros. The Red Sox are your own division. Yeah. I mean, baseball more than any other sport, does it feel this way on the inside cuz it looks this way from the outside that you guys are it's, it, ba- battling at the margin, battling on the frontier more than in other, any other sport.
2: It's like fighting a, a war where you can't see the other side, though, because we don't know how far along they've made it. We see the product on the field, mm-hmm. right? But we don't know what their, their models are, yeah. what their thought process is. Yeah. We can only <laughs> see the outcome of it. Right. So maybe once in a while an employee goes from one team to the other and you might get a general sense of what's mm-hmm. going on. But it's really hard, and, and beat writers don't really sc- even scratch the surface mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. what's going on, especially in the analytics departments.
1: Mm-hmm. So, in that in that in that situation, what do you what what are you trying to do? Then, how do you try to how do you measure yourself? How do you know whether you're doing well in terms of as an organ, as an analytics organization?
2: I think there, there's two mm-hmm. things. One is winning World Series is the ultimate goal, of course, but it's it's a little bit of a cliche. But it's process. It's that we have a really really good decision-making process that involves every single aspect of the organization from scouting to analytics to player development to sports science and so on and so forth and have great people leading all those departments. Well
1: well, it's scary to hear you describe that given the resources the Yankees have already and the brand the Yankees have and the recruiting advantage essentially they have (laughs) being in New York City and now they're aligned in all of these ways. I know you've only been there three years or so but when when people talk about getting to that place, over what time are you talking? This is a, you don't get there overnight. This is something that been, you've been moving toward probably for 10, 12 years. What's your sense of how different it is? How far back do you have to go to find a very different organization?
2: Yeah, so in the mid-2000s, Brian Cashman, our general manager, hired an analyst, the first analyst, Michael Fishman, and he sort of created this analytics department. And along the way, it's grown and there's been more infrastructure built. And now he is, Michael Fishman, is the assistant general manager. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's become a bigger and bigger part of the organization as well. But, Mm -hmm. you know, back in the early 2000s, there were probably a handful of people in New York doing baseball operations. Mm
1: -hmm. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, listen, um, really appreciate you being here. Theo Fetter, quantitative analyst for the New York Yankees. Thanks for being at the conference. Thanks for being a panelist for us today. And thanks for making time for the radio show.
2: Thank you very much. A pleasure.
1: You bet. All right. We're going to have William Dang. Here for the next few minutes, we have William is the vice president of media strategy and business development at the NFL. That's the National Football League. <laughs> nice William, to be here. Yeah, glad, glad you're here. Thanks for making the time for us. William is VP there with the NFL. He's been there since 2015. Prior to being with the NFL, he was associate director of strategy at a consultancy firm named Interbrand, and before that, the Clinton Foundation. He has an MBA from MIT after getting an undergrad degree here at Wharton. Glad to have you back at school, William.
3: Appreciate it. Good to be back.
1: Well, um, tell us a little bit about your work there at the NFL uh, the, and, and and how you got in there. How did you transition from MIT through – was Clinton Foundation before or after MIT? Before. Before. So Clinton Foundation, MIT, and then you end up in the NFL. That's it. Interesting series. That three, that, that that triple is an unlikely triple. So tell it, us about it, that transition. Those it is,
3: and my career has been sort of a bit of a whirlwind. I actually started my career uh, in financial services at Goldman Sachs. Okay. So Coming a, out of here, you went to Goldman. Coming out of Wharton. Okay. Wharton,
1: Gold. Goldman. All right.
3: That's right. And, um, and when I was at Goldman, I worked in a, in a group called the Special Situations Group, which basically was an on-balance sheet um, fund investing in public and private securities. Uh, did a lot of work in alternative energy, and from there transitioned to the Clinton Foundation, okay. where we advised foreign governments on setting up their own clean energy policy. Okay, so okay. that was the transition to Clinton.
1: All right. Um, how this, long? How long do you have to work at Goldman Sachs before the Clinton Foundation is interested in hiring? You? <laughs> it as was as a kid, as a twenty whatever four year old, twenty five yeah,
3: year old. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I think it was a, it was an amazing experience. I got lucky, just like how I got lucky with the NFL. I think a lot of the good breaks that you get in, you know, whether in life or in, in your career are based on the relationships you built. And in both instances, I had a friend from Penn oh, who yeah? had, was working there at the time, called me up, said, hey, we have a new position. Are you interested okay. in it? Come okay. on in. Okay. Uh, and that's how it's worked out. So, wow. you know, build those relationships.
1: Exactly. Okay, so you, you, you're, with, you're with Goldman, then you go to Clinton, then you decide to go to MIT. How was, you know, MIT, I think of MIT as... One of the ascendant universities, because the, the world's kind of coming to MIT in, te- right. in technology. And so how did you find the experience there after, well, we're proud of Penn, of course, but I'm interested, you chose to go there instead of, instead of Penn, um, and there's a, you know, it's a different school. So what's the report out of MIT these days?
3: Um, highly entrepreneurial environment, you know, self-starters, people who go there, know what they want, go after it. Um, it's a great environment, I think, you know, out of my class of a couple hundred people, or yeah, a couple hundred people, you know, a large number of them came out starting their own businesses. Mm-hmm. So risk this, takers, entrepreneurial.
1: Mm-hmm. This is something that's really changed about the NBA world in general. So I've been teaching for 16 or 17 years now, and almost nobody was interested in entrepreneurship in the beginning. And now most, I mean, most of me, at least think about it. A lot of MBAs are working on stuff yeah. right now. A lot of people go straight into that kind of thing. All right, so you're at MIT, and then you're going to make this jump to the NFL. How did, how did this How did this happen
3: <laughs> yeah, you know when I was at mit i I thought about the entrepreneurship route uh, didn 't happen uh, went to a went to a consulting firm called Interbrand. What I really was trying to get um, to build from a from a skills perspective was um, you know understanding the consumer, understanding the sort of consumer facing part of the okay. business i'd spent a lot of time on obviously the financial structuring those types of those types of executions but want to understand the consumer more so okay. went to interbrand big brand consulting firm um, a lot of strategic work with big brands Okay, um, and uh, and from there again relationships a um, good friend of mine from from Penn who had known for years called me up and said are you interested uh, in coming to interview with the NFL we have a position open to media um, what do you think? I came in had some conversations really interesting conversations obviously as you know media is an fascinating space to be in right now with all the changes that are happening and it's a uh, it's a great place to you know flex your strategic muscles your intellectual muscles your curiosity about what the possible is um so i did it did
1: you did you grow up an nfl fan
3: uh i actually grew up in toronto ah and cfl cfl i did i watched the cfl (laughs) I i watched a lot of cfl um, and then I have to credit my Penn experience in making me an NFL fan. Wow. You know, Could, I didn't watch the Bills when I grew up in Toronto, so when I came here, the, the Eagles were my team. The
1: Eagles were your team. And that's still are. That's fabulous. Well, you know, you, you, you're right. The media landscape and is just is so both important and dynamic right now. I mean— I, I think unless you're working in it full-time, you kind of can't keep track of it. Right. And, I mean, everyone's just placing bets anyway because no one knows what's going to happen. But if you're, not, if you're not paying a lot of attention, it's really hard to even keep track of the players. And the NFL is kind of an interesting situation because you're, such a, you're a provider of some of the only content that people still want to watch live, right? Everything else is going to get you know taped away and played whenever people want to. But you've got this very special product. But then you're also in the distribution business a little bit yourself, and so, so you're in the middle of all that.
3: We we are. I mean, obviously the crown jewel of our our business is our live games, right? Mm-hmm. Our 256 live regular season games plus playoffs and Super Bowl. But those happen on you know Thursdays, Sundays, and Mondays, and mm-hmm. there are other days of the week and other times where you want to be able to engage your fans outside mm-hmm. of those live games. And so, you know, we've built a, biz- a business model. Um, Around doing that, whether it's through our own and operated properties like NFL Network, NFL.com, um, NFL Films, uh, or through our third party partnerships, our social partnerships, our partnerships with other distributors um, to make sure we can engage our fans 24-7 on the platforms where they spend time mm-hmm. and in different ways outside of the live games, whether it's, you know behind the scenes, under the helmet, getting to know our players, mm-hmm. um, telling stories around the game. Those are all ways that I think it's, it's important to engage our fans.
1: So this is Kate Massey. I'm, I'm hosting a special business radio presentation from the Wharton Sports Business Summit. We're sitting with William Dang. William is Vice President of Media Strategy and Business Development at the NFL. The, 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 the different vehicles you guys have, there's a specialness about things, even like NFL films. So I happened to be at—I I went to a game, a live game last yeah. weekend, and we're waiting. We were waiting to go into the game at, a, at the stadium, and this guy comes through from NFL Films, and there was a, there was—I mean, it's kind of silly, but it was like, oh, that—that's cool. That guy is cool. He's got a cool yeah. job because yeah. everyone has watched those. You almost were the original in, in that whole genre. In some ways, you created this job in the genre—the slow motion right, and, you know, with the right. back with that with that distinctive background vocal. Um, anyway, you've just got a lot of material to work with there.
3: Yeah, storytelling is important, you mm-hmm. know? Um, and NFL Films does a great job doing that. Mm-hmm.
1: What's an example of something that you're working on right now in this space? So we're talking about it at a, kind of a relatively abstract level, like positioning the NFL, taking advantage of the days that the live games aren't, somehow placing your chips on how things are going to shake up across media as a whole. What's a, what's a concrete example of the project you're working on right now in the middle of all that?
3: Yeah, I'll I'll talk about a good example. You know, you talk about the media landscape shifting and wanting to make sure you're meeting the demands of new fans and and new technologies. We have a partnership right now with Intel where we're developing a technology called volumetric video. And the vision of that is ultimately one day you could be as a fan anywhere on the field um, (laughs) in real time, right? Think about, uh, you know, the demo that I saw when we first started talking to Intel. I was literally running alongside Russell Wilson as he's throwing a touchdown. And, you know, that that's a new experience that you can imagine that sometime down the road when the technology right. is, has gotten to that point, um, that could be pretty incredible uh, and, and differentiate it from a live game
1: viewing experience. Right. So, by, by the way, technologically, how does that work? Do they have more cameras, or are they just getting better about projecting you into spaces that they've filmed?
3: It's both of those things. Okay. Yeah, I mean, you hit it exactly on the head. It's a multiple... Um, it's an approach where they have multiple cameras around the stadium and through the triangulation of those camera positions, being able to create digital, um, you know, pixels to be able to then put you in Mm -hmm. virtual environments.
1: Mm -hmm. How do you guys think about the balance between maximizing the in game experience and maximizing the product on television? And to what extent are these things in tension and to what extent are you focusing on one or the other?
3: Um, yeah, it's a really good question. I mean, you know, it, it, in some ways, we always talk about the fact that the best the best screen experience is the, is the in-stadium experience. So that's that's always the focus, right? And we talk about the fact that if the in-stadium experience is not a good one, the on-TV on experience is not going to be a good one either. Mm-hmm. You don't want to watch a game that's at, a, at an empty stadium, mm-hmm. right? And so the in-stadium experience is, is a crucial one. We work with our clubs. We have a team... Um, Uh, at the League Office Club Business Development that spent a lot of time working with our clubs to make sure that we develop a great in-stadium experience. And the live experience complements that. Mm -hmm. For those who aren't able to make it to a game, we want to make sure then that live TV experience is as compelling as possible for
1: us. Okay, okay. I hadn't been to a game in a little while. I go to them rarely enough that I'm still kind of, you kind of experience them as a Martian like you hadn't been there before. And I was struck by how it's almost like less intense in some way. It was, it was Baltimore-Pittsburgh, so it was an intense game, rivalry game. But I think when we were watching it on TV, we get so worked up. You know, it's just the action here. Yeah. When you're at the stadium, you've got a lot else going on. It's more open. There's kind of a circus going on. And if you want to just check a little bit out of the game and just back up a little bit, it's this very interesting atmosphere. It's just—it's kind of a party. It's kind of a party yeah. circus. It's a little bit less intense in, in this odd way than watching the game live on TV.
3: Yeah, I mean, to me, nothing beats the in-stadium experience. Mm-hmm. But there is a level of storytelling, you're right, that you get out of a television production. Mm-hmm. And our television partners have had a lot of experience and have gotten really good mm-hmm. at creating a compelling TV experience. Mm-hmm. But, you know, at the end of the day, it... it, it as an Eagles fan, you can't be being at the game <laughs> right. when they win. Right, right.
1: right. How, is, how does it work, the partnership between, between your offices and Park Avenue or whatever it is in New York and the individual franchises? So to what extent are you working with those guys as you make decisions? To what extent have you just been commissioned by the owners to do your own thing? To what extent are you collaborating with them about their own stadium and their own thing? How does the partnership work?
3: Yeah, we have a you know we have a pretty unique model at the NFL, a national local model where there are certain rights that um, we feel are better leveraged when they are um, being developed at the national level across all thirty-two teams. So our live game rights are a good example of that. And in those situations, we um, you know we'll take those rights and through consultation with key owners and committees um, and ultimately you know league wide. Um, decisions, will, you know, we'll, we'll make those decisions on a, on a league-wide basis, mm-hmm. for example, on our TV contracts. Okay. Um, and, and that model has worked well for us.
1: Okay. The league has had political issues, they've had sensitive issues, there's been controversial stuff um, in the last couple of years. How has it affected, does it affect your, your work day-to-day? Do you guys feel like you're, is it part of the agenda to figure out, to get ahead of the health issues or to get ahead of the activism issues? Where is that sit right now, and how, how are you navigating it right now? It feels like it's calmed down a little bit, but it's there in a way that it, you know, five years ago wasn't there at all.
3: Yeah, you know, it doesn't really affect my day-to-day. It, you know, for our group, and especially in media strategy, we're focused you know, on, on the fans. We're very much looking at what are the ways that we can engage with fans, and what are the platforms that they're on, and, and how do they consume our content what's what's missing what can we improve on those are the things that we focus on from a media perspective and a okay. fan engagement perspective
1: can you give us an example of something we think the fans will be a way in which they'll be experiencing the game in the next couple of years so this not the volume metrics 10 years from now running alongside russell yeah. wilson but how might they be experiencing the game next year or two years from now in a different way than they are right now
3: yeah i'll give you an example of something that we're starting to see it a little bit now and that's around you know interactivity with our games right now It's a pretty linear, lean-back experience. You sit at home, you watch the game. It's a great experience. But, you know, there's a world out there where um, you can interact much more freely and much more actively with our games. Uh, And something that we're doing now with Thursday Night Football, with our partnership with Amazon, is we're distributing those games on Twitch. And if you know anything about the Twitch platform, it's a highly engaged, highly interactive platform. Yeah,
1: so tell me how a fans going to interact with the game. This reminds me, there's a league in texas i think where the fans get to call the plays but this is like you know an amateur kind of thing right minor league kind of thing how would how would for the nfl a, a fan interact with the game from a distance
3: yeah and, and a lot of it is about interacting with each other um ah, okay so twitch obviously is a platform where people go and they watch a lot of gaming content um okay. e-sports. um they get to engage with a lot of the the influences or personalities that that make a living out of being on twitch and um, and they interact with each other through chat and I through see. some of the, the different extensions that they have. So we've built out some of those products in partnership with Twitch around our okay. Thursday Night Football games where okay. our fans are highly engaged, whether it's in chat or in some of those extensions.
1: So it's like going to the game with your buddies. Exactly. It's a, it's a richer version of, like, following your Twitter thread. That's right. Time. Got it. All right. Well, listen, William, really appreciate you being down here for the conference and for taking the time out of the conference to sit here for the radio show thanks for having me you bet that was william dang vice president of media strategy and business development at the national football league we are here at the special sports business summit at wharton Cade massey at the wharton school your host we have two great guests joining us over the final half hour of the program the first of whom i'm happy to welcome right now debbie devito is the senior vice president of finance at city debbie Welcome to the show.
0: Thank you, Cade. Happy to be here.
1: Thanks for coming down to the conference. Thanks for making time for the show in the middle of the conference. Debbie is Senior Vice President of Sports Finance at City. She's been there for seven years, been in city, at City for seven years. She has a master's from the University of Virginia, originally from the south. She says she's from Georgia and Florida State and was, was uh, raised to be an ACC girl, not an SEC girl, right? That's some right. Some biases right. down there in Georgia, it turns yes. out.
0: Hence the trip up the, the East Coast.
1: You <laughs> slowly made your way up, Florida State, and then Virginia, and then New York, and we managed to pull you back down here to Pennsylvania for a little bit. That's
0: right. It's beautiful.
1: So, so we, we are a sports business conference. You're on the business side, but it's in the business of sports. So can you tell us a little bit about how city gets involved with sports?
0: Yeah, that's a, a great question. The, the title there is a little misleading. I, I, we have a very broad sports group. It's more than just finance. Um, You know, Citi is a huge global bank, and we can do a lot of things for institutions and individuals. And so we've built a niche business around the sports industry. Um, Our clients are professional sports teams, leagues, and the individuals who own those and invest in those teams. Uh, So there's an institutional and very personal aspect to what we do. So uh, generally, most of my clients come to me out the gate looking for an advisor, Mm-hmm. To, to help them acquire or divest of a, a, an investment in sports assets. Okay. So uh, that, that's the individual side, the investors. And then I also have relationships with the, the leagues and the teams. So um, we have $1.5 billion worth of balance sheet, which we lend out to professional sports leagues and teams. And then we help them with, on a host of things, investments, um, cash management,
1: Okay, so to the you know, most of us are naive about these kinds of things. What do sports teams need with your $1.5 billion worth of loans? Like, what do they do with that money?
0: A lot of different things. You know, I mean, they're running businesses. So, mm-hmm. you know, just, just like a, a, a business would, would need cash to, you know, run their business and cash flow timing issues. hmm. Mm mm-hmm. okay. so, um, and, then, and then also, like, there's, you know, city. Uh, doesn't lend through through my program to uh, the infrastructure of sport, but we have a desk, our capital markets origination group, okay. and they will provide the financing necessary to okay. to construct a, so these a billion stadium. dollar
1: stadiums, two billion dollar stadiums yeah. that are being built these days. So on the on the advisory side, it you know we're aware when someone goes in and buys the Carolina Panthers. In fact, we had just had a session here at the conference on mm-hmm. um, that transaction, but. If if Citi's in this business and other banks are in this business, they must be having those kinds of transactions on a more regular basis, other leagues. So can you talk about some of the kinds of transactions that
0: you advise? Yeah, sure. So I, that's a great question. And, and one of the reasons that Citi is uniquely good at what we do is that uh, our business, as I said, it sits within Citi's private bank and that's where uh, centimillionaires and billionaires sit. So when I have a client who's looking to be a GP of a professional sports franchise, I can also help them raise strategic equity.
4: Okay. So
0: I'll reach out to my bankers. So real quickly for board. our listeners, GP yeah. general partner. General partner. Okay. Yeah. So I know wants, speaking the lingo here. They
1: want to run it but they need some money. They need somebody else's yeah. money to back That's them
0: up. Right. That's right. OPM everybody knows that one, right? <laughs> okay. uh, yeah, we so limited partners, we can help source them. Okay. But those are folks who will invest alongside with with the general partner, the the owner that everyone sees in the news. Yeah, right. Uh and and you can through, through our network of clients, I can identify people who are just looking to put cash to work okay. in an investment. I can find people who have certain expertise that's relevant, merchandising, licensing, that kind of thing.
1: Okay. So that, that's interesting. I didn't realize that you live within the private bank part of things. So this is a, becomes an alternative vehicle for your clients,
0: essentially. That's right. Professional sports investments, it's very alternative investment in nature, but mm-hmm. very private equity-like. You know the generally the the drivers of the investment, real estate, and media. So right. if you have a client that has a real estate or a media bias, odds are I can get them excited about sports.
1: Okay, so tell us about if about this class of assets, alternative investments. So mm-hmm. you, it's uh, in your business, people talk about this all the time, but many people don't know about this. We think about you know buying a mutual fund or buying an index fund, or we, we think about how much to allocate for. Equities versus you know fixed income bonds, yeah. bonds. So you're talking about something else. You're talking about third class generally. What? Tell us about that third class.
0: Yeah, the third class is is putting your money to work in frankly a, a non traditional way. Stocks and bonds, as, as you mentioned. Uh, a, a lot of times you'll see real estate investments, private equity investments, and uh, in the alternative space we categorize our, our sports offering as, as an alternative investment okay. as well. So
1: so so. You know, it sounds like you're saying your clients, if you're a client of private banking at City, then you, you, might be, you might be able to be an owner of a professional sports team. That seems outside the reach of most people. You think, you know, Jerry Jones owns the Cowboys or, yeah. you know, Mark Cuban owns the Mavs or something like that. Those those don't seem like real people. Yeah. But you've got, a, you've got a number of clients, real people in, in your private bank, and you're putting them into these ownership positions. Sure.
0: We, we um – we had two clients heading off against one another at the Stanley Cup this year. So, oh, is that so right? yeah, team owners need, need bank accounts too, mm, right? right? So, so uh, look, our, our goal is to sit with our clients and think really, really big. And, and I have the great fortune of, of, of working with, with really sharp clients who have significant wealth. So, how do we help advance their objectives on a much larger scale? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, you know, there's, there is an intersection of, of passion. And, and business uh, and, and you know often sports assets are viewed as trophy assets and that's mm-hmm. just not the case mm-hmm. anymore it, it could be and in certain parts of the world and in certain uh, teams for sure you can throw cash at a, at a uh, sports enterprise but you think about the, the team owners that, that you hear in the news and, and th- those folks know what they're doing mm-hmm. and so my, my job is to help them bring those dreams to life but then deepen the relationship from there. Okay. So if they do add uh, a loan on top of it, okay, well, let's, let's be smart about that. There's a, um, a floating rate, a floating interest rate on that loan. There's a lot going on in the market. Let's, let's hedge yeah. it out, whatever, yeah. whatever it needs to be. And, and, um, so I can, I can introduce them to my partners globally and, and it just makes it a lot of fun because the advisory business, it can be a one-time transaction, mm-hmm. but it doesn't have to be at City.
1: Mm-hmm. 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 So how did you get into this? So I, I've, the private client services or private banking, most big banks have a branch that does this. Is that, was that your vehicle into this, or did you come through the sports side? And to what extent do people specialize in these kinds of assets once they're, in, once they're inside private banking?
0: Mm-hmm. So the, the question, how did you get into sports, it's interesting because you hear it a lot. And uh, most people I work with, that wasn't what they set out to do necessarily. Okay. Uh, but I'll say I worked hard and I got lucky. Okay. I uh, I was at Ernst and Young as as you know. I was I was um, started as an auditor and then moved into a, an advisory due diligence type role. So okay. um, you're
1: saying a bunch of words that people don't connect with sports. This uh, is the amazing yeah. thing about right. This group. Yeah,
0: I'm I'm an accountant. I'm a CPA. Okay. And uh, and so I was um, working on financial services targets M and A. So buying and selling <laughs> professional. I'm sorry. Uh, um, Financial services, businesses, yeah. banks, yeah. asset management yeah. companies, insurance yeah. companies. And uh, while I was there, did some volunteer work at a not-for-profit school and met the individual who introduced me to my now boss. Wow. They were looking for someone who could read financial statements okay. on the team and I said I could do that. Okay. So, um, here we are now. <laughs>
1: What, what have you seen change? It feels like the sports business world is changing significantly. Part of that's media. Part of it's a new generation of owner, a new, new type of owner. What have you seen change in your seven years of doing this?
0: Yeah, everything's changing really, really quickly. So that that's a question. You can take it in so many different directions. But uh, the one that I'm really excited about lately is this. The diversity that you're starting to see in terms of owners—you uh, know—you're seeing some foreign nationals coming to the U.S. leagues and, and the European professional leagues as well. Um, that's for a number of reasons. Uh, goodness, if, if you—if you're a league and you want to increase your viewership, look no further than Asia, right? And uh, right. so, so that's that's really interesting to me. Uh, I, I think the valuation. The increasing valuations—they're they're incredible and mm-hmm. and just fascinating to really think about that the, that these numbers are skyrocketing and, and that that goes back to to the value drivers. You know, they're they're increasingly being valued like media companies mm-hmm. right. because that's the the underlying. Uh, There's uh, some value. really nice
1: real estate and so everything. <laughs> that's
0: right. That's right. So so look, well, you, you have people billionaires and some millionaires who can afford these these assets, but they may not want to. They may want to bring on some additional investors mm-hmm. to help so that they aren't putting all their eggs in mm-hmm. one basket, so to mm-hmm. speak. And so um, it's given me some opportunity. You know, I, I talk about city being a global bank. I can work with clients all over the world to identify investors. And so um, I, I, I think that is the one that I'm, I'm most excited about is just to have a more diverse um, ownership base.
1: Okay. Well, I was about to ask you what it is that you're most excited about working on right now. What, what do you think is changing that, that you'll be fired up about in the next couple of years?
0: Yeah, I, I hate to say that. I already answered that question. Okay, fine, but, but you know, I, that's...
1: So, well, let me, let me just drop deeper down to it, though. Yeah. You're based in New York, but you're talking about most being excited about this diverse set of owners. How is yeah. it that you're tapping into that broader set of owners?
0: Sure. So, so um, my team has a global mandate, uh, and, and so I can travel anywhere in the world and go to any, any client in the world. Uh, and, and the leagues increasingly are global. So it's a matter of... Uh, getting out in front of those people so communicating with cities bankers all over the world making sure they have a full understanding of what it is m- i do mm-hmm. and that there is value in professional sports and investing in sports assets uh and so it's a matter of communicating those people i was in hong kong uh, about two weeks ago mm-hmm. um, sitting on a panel of family office uh Mm-hmm. Uh, folks, mm-hmm. so, so talking to them about the sports industry, dripping the idea of sports as an, inv- as an investment, mm-hmm. and talking about the industry and where it's going and how to capitalize mm-hmm. on it.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, listen, wish you the best with that work, and thank you again for taking time to be with us today and coming down to the conference today. In the last, in the last segment, we're going to talk with another gentleman in sports finance of sort, Wayne Kimmel. Wayne is managing partner at 76 Capital. Wayne's a sports tech venture capitalist. He's managing partner there of the firm that he has been around since 1999. One of his partners in that firm, by the way, Ryan Howard, local hero. Ryan Howard.
4: Wayne, welcome to the show. Hey, Kate. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it.
1: Glad glad you took the time to be with us. Thanks for being at the conference today. want to hear about the work that you're doing, looking through some of these materials. It's pretty exciting, it sounds like, what you're doing. You've been doing this for about... I don't know, 20 years, coming up on 20 years?
4: Coming up on 20 years, exactly.
1: How would you describe what it is that 76
4: Capital does? So 76 Capital is a sports tech venture capital fund, and we're all about investing in the next, next amazing entrepreneur who's smart, who's nice, who wants to change the world, change the sports world, do something completely new within the whole sports business And we're all about those young startup entrepreneurs. Okay,
1: so Wayne, if you've been doing this for 20 years and that's what you're about, some of those first investments are now industry shapers, are not so young anymore, they're mature people in the industry. Who were some of the early bets that you made that have flowered and, and grown since then?
4: Well, it's some of the companies that we love to talk about are companies like Seamless Web, which is now public as Grubhub. it's a $12 billion business today. And, Mm -hmm. you know, back in the day when people didn't know anything about ordering food online, that was something.
1: That that was a nice little contribution to the world, Wayne. Much much appreciated.
4: Thank you. I mean, and then also the idea of having the clinics that you see inside of pharmacies today where you can walk Mm -hmm. in and get checked out inside of a a pharmacy. We were the company that backed the company that now is running the clinics inside of Walgreens. Okay. And then we've done stuff like that. We now we're in the sports space. We've been in, we've gotten involved with companies where we had Dan Marino as a spokesperson for one of our companies. We were invested along with Derek Jeter, Peyton Manning and Mia Hamm in whistle sports, which a lot of people know that business just from our guys, from the dude, perfect guys and all their trick shots. Okay. So we've done stuff in and around all those worlds. And now we're just so excited about what's happening in the sports tech world in general, and specifically what's happening in the sports betting space, as well as the, esports world
1: okay so let's talk about those things i mean we've seen the transformation already on the esports side of things let's talk about that first the valuations on these franchises are just unbelievable i know sophisticated investors who are like yeah i missed that one i should have been in on that one and they're and they're wondering whether they might still ought to get in now like maybe it's still going to keep
4: going well see i think there's that's one of the things that most people Talk about when they think about esports, and they just talk about the professional level. Yeah. So there's a professional side of it, but there's also the amateur side. Sure. And that's the area that we really are focused on. Okay. We're focused on you know there's there's the professional side, which a lot of the billionaires and, and, and team owners are buying in at those very very high valuations. But what we're really interested in is the rest of the pyramid, basically. Right. Okay. So, what is the rest of the pyramid? So it's it's the we're only
1: just getting to know the top of this. Those of us who don't do this kind of thing. So what is below the very top?
4: Well, it's where all the fans are, where all the young players are. So there's really no minor leagues yet. There are no little leagues. There are no camps yet. Well, actually now at Nerd Street Gamers, we now have camps. We have boot camps. We have leagues. We have tournaments for the amateurs. And it's just for people. And then it's where are you going to find the players who are actually going to go and take those 80 scholarships that are out there right now from the 80 different universities that are giving scholarships to kids to play Esports now, and, right. and all the different games across that. Okay, so we want to develop the the base, the fans, and the next generation of players. Okay,
1: so um, the 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 platform you use to do this is unique. It sounds to me like you're, you're you've created a platform that brings in professional athletes, for example. Is this right? So, um, can you talk a little bit about that?
4: Yeah. So at Seventy Six Capital, we have something called the Athlete Venture Group. And it's chaired by my partner, Ryan Howard, who's the former um, professional baseball player, played for the Phillies, won the World Series here in you Philadelphia, bet. You bet. MVP, uh, Rookie of the Year. So he's chairing our Athlete Venture Group. As part of our Athlete Venture Group, we have a number of athletes that have been very successful in their, in their careers, of the likes of DeMarco Murray, who, plays, who played in the NFL for many years as, as an All-Pro and now mm-hmm. is at uh, Fox sports, doing college football games, and Ralph Sampson, the former uh, Hall of Fame basketball player, Mm -hmm. and we're bringing a lot more more athletes onto this platform because this platform is all about helping athletes today to engage in the sports business, Mm -hmm. get involved in the business, but also learn, figure out ways to get their Mm hands-on and be hands-on with the sports tech business.
1: One of the things, the reasons this jumps out to me is that we know that professional athletes have many opportunities put on them and some of them aren't that they make mistakes sometimes and there can be very expensive mistakes so this whole question of how can we educate athletes to spend and invest invest their money wisely and what kind of vehicles are good vehicles for, versus you know not so good vehicles so how, how do you how do you get into that whole space how do you how do you provide the assurances that they need that you're not you know, that that you're a wise investment and not an unwise investment.
4: Yeah, I think it's really important. At our Athlete Venture Group, it's all about investing and learning and getting an opportunity to train and really figure out what's happening within the tech space. So mm-hmm. just like any other investment that anyone would make, you need to diversify what you do. So if you just pick one company, you think that next company is going to be the next Facebook, that's a really dangerous thing to go do. Right. So with what we do at 76 Capital and when we have venture capital funds, we have a diversified platform of companies yep. in the sports tech space, in the future of retail space where you have this opportunity to have investments across a number of companies and then get involved in ones that you want to get involved with. And that's, that's where a lot of our athletes are interested in because it gives them this opportunity to not just solely be involved with one business.
1: And, and, and also not to just be an investor. You're saying these guys want to get involved with management or learning or education or something like that.
4: Yeah, One of the things that we've learned over the years is that today's athletes are way smarter than they've ever been. And you know, I think it's, what's fascinating is, is they want to be entrepreneurs themselves. They want to understand how to use their social capital that they have, not only just the, the, the dollars that they have in their pockets and the money that they're making, but how can they use their brand? How can they make a company even better? Yeah. And how can they make themselves better? Okay. So there's that piece. And they also are interested in being able to be an investor as well. Okay. So let me
1: flip it around on yeah, you. Can, 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 can any athlete get in, or do you screen them in some way?
4: Well, you know, the, the big thing at 76 Capital is, is we want to work with people who are smart and who are nice and have a big vision and want to change the world. Okay. And so if an athlete fits that, we okay. want to talk with them. Okay. And one of the ways we do screen it, we actually have a partnership with, with one of the only, we believe we're the only venture capital firm that have a partnership with a sports marketing firm. Our sports marketing firm is called Rubicon Talent where we work with professional athletes, Olympic athletes, sports broadcasters, and celebrity chefs. And we work with them on their sports (laughs) marketing side. Okay. But also all of our clients have access to 76 Capital if they're interested in the business side. Okay.
1: Interesting. Very interesting. All right. We're going to run out of time, but I don't want to run out of time before talking about betting. So everybody's talking about betting these days. The regulation landscape is changing. We think it's probably going to continue to change. So what do you see happening, and how are you participating in those changes?
4: So we're, we're deep into the sports betting space. We've made you know, a number of investments in that space and looked at it, look at it in, in this way. We believe there's opportunities around capturing all the data out there mm-hmm. and using that in sports betting space. We're interested in what's happening around the analytics. We're interested also what's happening in the media side what's going to happen with, with media in and around the industry, as well as the actual broadcasters themselves, how you'll need to know more to be a broadcaster in the sports betting space. So specifically, one of the things that we work with right now is, is VEASAN. VEASAN also on XM, like, yeah. your, like your channel here. Mm-hmm. Um, we're on, we're on XM 204. We're also available on com and our app and on a number of ott channels and we've started this company it's like the cnbc of the sports betting industry we started it with brent musburger and we And ah, he was always famous.
1: Yeah. Oh, he came from a gambling family, right? Doesn't his family have ties to some books in a very proper, above-board way? Well,
4: well I'll tell you, we have studio in Las Vegas right now, mm-hmm. oh, and we also it. have a studio in Atlantic City, okay. and we're very excited about what's happening in the overall sports okay.
1: betting. Okay, you, be C- you want to be the CNBC of sports betting. What That's does correct. That, what does that look like?
4: What that really looks like is just like we want to have the view above the New York Stock Exchange like CNBC has. We have that view right now in sports books in Las Vegas and also here in Atlantic City okay. where we have that view from the Ocean Resort and Casino.
1: Okay, so it, but what does it look like to be a news provider in that space? What news are you providing that's so you, different
4: than ESPN? Well, we, our information is truly actionable. So when we talk about a game, it's not just about, you know, how do you think this quarterback's going to do? It's like, how do you think this quarterback's going to do? But how does that, how is that going to affect the number? How is that mm-hmm. going to affect the line? And then with today's world, with all the different prop bets and in-bet, in-game betting that you can go do, that is really fascinating when you get all the way down to the player prop level where you can have a bet today. You can bet whether or not you think LeBron versus Steph Curry, who's going right. to score more.
1: Right, right, right. So where do you think the greatest opportunity is? There's so much movement here and there's so much uncertainty. You named many different things. You said data, analytics, production, like a news channel. What what are you most interested in? What are your priorities across those?
4: Well, we're, we're invested in all those different areas, and we're actually looking for more investments and more entrepreneurs that are doing interesting things all around this industry. Okay. Because we believe, just like many other people, like Adam Silver, the, the commissioner of the NBA, believes this is going to be a $400 billion industry. What is it now? It's, right now, it's, it's less in a regulated space, but in the unregulated world, yeah. unregulated, You know, there are estimates that last year there was over $250 billion bet in the United States in an okay. unregulated fashion.
1: So if the, you're saying if they... If they loosen these regulations, then all that unregulated becomes part of a legitimate industry, essentially.
4: Well, unregulated means illegal. Yeah, yeah, So, yeah. so regulated is, is the legal industry. And I right. think the legal industry, look, just— Loosen to- the
1: bans, I should say. So it'll stay regulated, but they won't be banned. So all that illegal money essentially can flow into legal channels. It can flow into these legitimate channels that you're trying to invest in.
4: Well, I think, I think the things will—there will be more legitimate—there there, there is going to be more legal— betting in the u.s than ever before because there was only, it was only legal in the state of nevada right now since may 14th when the supreme court overturned paspa which is allowing each state to regulate to actually regulate their state to allow people for to bet legally that's where this industry is really going yep. and so as as each state continues to go there will be more and more opportunities for people to bet there'll be more and more opportunities for entrepreneurs who to create businesses that will be the next next big thing in this industry as well so here's
1: an important question i think and that is what about entrepreneurs in the sports book side of things like this is kind of ground zero for betting is like who's actually running the sports book some of these regulations limit competition you know you want to go down here to delaware you're basically you've got no competition you're going to go to one outfit to bet and you know prices matter people it's, it's not just you know getting the right side it's getting the right side at a good price
4: well this is a really interesting question and I've got to tell you the thing is is that you think about to me this reminds me of the 90s and when the internet first started the internet should have been won by GE and IBM and maybe Microsoft but what happened Google Facebook Mm -hmm. Amazon those kind Mm -hmm. of companies came out of nowhere entrepreneurs came in and knocked those guys Mm -hmm. out Mm -hmm. right now Mm -hmm. you have the incumbents MGM William Hill you've got the DraftKings you have FanDuel those kind of guys Caesars they're the incumbents but watch out, because the entrepreneurs are coming.
1: So there's room. There's room for incumbents, even in the sports book space. Terrifically interesting. That's going to be interesting to watch. Listen, Wayne, we have to go, but we really appreciate you taking the time to be down here for the conference and to step in aside to visit with us on the radio. Wayne Kimmel. Thanks a lot, Kate. Thank you, Wayne Kimmel, managing partner at Seventy Six Capital, talking about sports investments, tech investments, sports betting investments. Really a pleasure. We are now at the end of our two-hour special from the Wharton Sports Business Summit here on the forum floor. Thanks to Eric Bradlow for covering the first hour of the show. Thanks from Maddie Daz for running the show. Um, thanks to SiriusXM for supporting. This has been Cade Massey, host. And um, from everyone here at the Wharton School and Business Radio, thank you for listening.
0: For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.